I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome back to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And this episode, we'll be asking the question, why do professionals do bad things? And to help us answer that question, we're going to be speaking to Professor Brooke Harrington. Brooke's an economic and organisational sociologist at Dartmouth, one of the US's prestigious Ivy League colleges. And Brooke's research draws upon theories of political economy, anthropology, social psychology, and behavioral finance. And today, I'm very much looking forward to hearing about her work on professional wrongdoing. So, Laurie, a year ago, when you first suggested that we should do an episode on professional ethics, I was thinking, "Mm, that does sound a bit abstract and maybe a bit boring. I I couldn't quite see what that had to do with leadership. But as we talked about it, I think we both agreed that you've actually seen quite a few prestigious professional firms stumbling over some really serious ethical challenges. And that does have to be seen as a leadership problem. Absolutely. I mean, the one bad Apple defence just won't work anymore. So we need to be asking more questions about why ethical scandals are becoming more and more commonplace in professional service firms. Yeah, I mean, it could be that regulation and public attitudes have changed. So behaviours which would have been commonplace before now seem ethically dubious and, uh, and get found out by the regulators. Or has something more fundamental changed in the attitudes of professionals and the systems they work within? So to me, either way, we've got to look to leadership both as a cause and as a potential solution. Absolutely. And if we think back and dig down a little bit into history, at the start of the 20th century, as the professions started to develop into their modern form, strong ethical foundations were seen as one of the defining characteristics of a profession. And researchers and sociologists of the professions emphasised that professionals were imbued with a spirit of altruism rather than self-interest, that they served some higher purpose, and that for professionals, the service ethic should always take precedence over commercial gain. And that makes perfect sense if you look at the earliest professions, the clergy and, and doctors and lawyers as well, of course. So lawyers always were taught and still are taught that their first duty is to the court not the clients. Yeah, but even by the 1970s, that's 50 years ago, that was starting to seem too idealistic. And researchers since then have started arguing that professionals have been using this rhetoric of serving the public interest to preserve their privileged and monopolistic status, to protect them from external regulation, to exclude others and and maintain, you know, high levels of income. And I can see that. And, you know, I think there's a bit of cynicism in that but I guess you know professionals have been losing that battle really and every time you get another high profile scandal the response seems to be to raise the bar on external regulation it just keeps on increasing but the scandals are keep on happening so what's going on here absolutely which brings us back to the question why and I sometimes wonder whether the concept of professionalism has become so degraded that it's become meaningless In the last few decades, the most successful professional service firms have redefined concepts of professionalism. And it's no longer primarily about serving the public interest. It's become about serving the client. And professionalism, in effect, has been merged into commercialism. And there's that old McKinsey mantra, client first, firm second, 
self-third. Well, that's great if your prime objective is to make money, but it doesn't say anything about serving the public interest. No, you're right. It doesn't. But, you know, in its own terms, it, it sort of makes sense because even for established professions like the law or accounting, let's not forget, in the end, it's your client, not the public, who pay your fee. So, you know, how do you split these loyalties? I mean, it's a huge problem that the auditors have been grappling with. I mean, they talk about audit clients because it's the company they're auditing that pays their fees. But legally, their first duty is to the public interest. But what what exactly is the public interest in this context? It is a pretty abstract concept. It's quite hard to get your head around. Yeah, it's one of those concepts that seems simple. But the more carefully you consider it, the more complex it becomes. I spent several years with the board of KPMG grappling with that exact question. In the UK, as a result of a series of accountancy scandals, the regulator requires the big audit firms to appoint independent non-executives. And their primary role is to safeguard, or, or at least to attempt to safeguard, the public interest. And for a while, I was chair at of the independent non-executives at KPMG. And how did that go for you? Well, David, it was it was very challenging. Okay, why don't we speak now to Professor Brooke Harrington. She's researched a lot in this field. She's got some interesting things to say. Hello, Brooke. Great to have you with us for this episode. We'd like to start off with a question around what is it that causes professionals to engage in misconduct, to go off the rails? Based on my research, I would say there are at least three different reasons which might intersect. One is, of course, money, that somebody needs or wants more money than they have, and there's a profit opportunity in misconduct, so they take it. Another is that they have some beliefs or ideological commitments that say, well, I know the world or my profession says that's misconduct, but I disagree, so I'm going to do X. And they would probably do the the misconduct even if there weren't some, say, financial advantage in it. They would just do it because they are committed to it. I can give you some examples of professionals I've run into who exemplify that. And then there's a third group who I think are kind of carried along by professional peer pressure. I mentioned when we were starting that I'm working on a paper about the dividend tax fraud scandal in Europe. One of the pivotal moments in that scandal back in the early 2000s was a very famous, illustrious tax attorney in Germany getting his team together to launch this pillaging raid on the welfare states of Europe and saying to his team, what we are doing is going to mean that kindergartens don't get built and hospitals don't get built. And if you have a problem with that, there's the door. So you can imagine it would have taken quite a bit of courage for someone at that table to stand up and say, yeah, I have a problem with that. Even if it's not illegal, it's a betrayal of professional ethics. So I'm out of here and you should be too. These are really interesting. And I think maybe we can drill down into each one of these points in a little bit more detail. Let's go right back to money where we started. What is it that causes someone to become so lustful for money that it leads them into this unethical behavior? I think I want to roll back a bit and question the premise. In an American context, you can make a lot of money being a professional. If you become, say, a personal attorney to a very wealthy person, you can make 
quite a bit. If you become, say, a celebrity plastic surgeon or a well-known open heart surgeon in a non-national healthcare setting, you can become a multimillionaire quite readily. So in certain contexts, being a professional is a way to make a lot of money. For other people, I would imagine that the need for money really starts to kick in around middle age. You know, you start having kids, mortgages, and all of a sudden you begin to feel, say, trapped by your commitments. Or you went to law school thinking that you're going to be someone who, who fights for what you believe in, but you hate corporate law, but you made partner, now you're stuck and you've got the mortgage and the kids. So how do you make it worthwhile for yourself? Maybe you actually hate the work, but if you can figure out a way to make a ton of money, it might compensate you for your unhappiness. Is this a motivation that affects people who tend to already have a lot and maybe just get greedy or find themselves then comparing themselves with other people who also have a lot? Or is it people who actually haven't got that much and are struggling? Or is it just all of the above? This is a key part of sociology, which is my field. And sociology says past the point where people have enough money to live, like they can put a roof over their heads and food on the table. What starts to kick in is not greed so much as a desire for status competition. And there's been really interesting work by people like Robert Frank in economics at Cornell about how people will actually fight harder for status than they will for money including in professional roles, like they want that corner office or they want the dedicated parking space, which they can show to other people. They want that more than the raise or the bonus that other people are not going to see. So what you just suggested says, okay, so maybe you have more than all the money you could have ever imagined wanting or needing based on your background, but suddenly you find yourself rubbing elbows with people who are much better off than you are. You've been upwardly mobile. And all of a sudden you realize that in order to status compete, you need to buy things that you didn't even want or know that you needed. That's absolutely fascinating, Brooke. And you just reminded me, um, there was a time when I was interviewing lawyers a lot and I would be sitting there, you know, with these big city lawyers who would be bemoaning that, um, they really weren't earning enough um, because their firm wasn't doing well enough. You know, they would be a multimillionaire, but really complaining that they deserve more money. And I couldn't get my head around this as an academic until I realized that their comparison points were their clients that were the investment bankers. And they were earning, you know, about a tenth of what the investment bankers were earning. And they knew they were a lot smarter than their clients. So it seemed to be unfair to them. So yes, it's always about your comparison point rather than beyond a certain level rather than the absolute levels. To follow up on the three categories you had of money, beliefs or peer pressure, I know of a couple of cases of professional misconduct by lawyers where it wasn't apparent, at least as far as I knew, that there was any money being made by them personally from what they were doing. But it seemed to be more they just got too close to the client and they were sucked into the client's kind of um, little world. And in pursuit of looking after the client and doing their best for the client as they saw it, they stepped over the line. Does that fall into the belief category? Maybe where they believe they were doing the right thing for the client, their sense of serving the client to the best of their ability led them down a, yeah, a really bad path. That's a good point. And it, you're reminding me of the Godfather movies. In the Godfather, there's an, an attorney, he's called a consigliere, 
And they actually want to make him part of this Italian mafia family, but they don't quite get around to it because the attorney himself is an Irish German fellow. But he he literally knows where all the bodies are buried. And he's long ago thrown away any allegiance he has to the law as being about truth or justice. His one motivation is protect the family. And it sounds pretty good when you say that, like, who could argue with protecting a family, except that it's protecting a family who does really bad things at the expense of pretty much all other families. About half the wealth managers I interviewed in my study of offshore said that as their motivation for their profession. Like, I really feel that I'm helping families. And I would listen to them and the thought bubble, the invisible thought bubble over my head was, yes, that's true. But you know, and I know that that's only half the thought that you're uttering out loud right now. The other half of the thought is by helping the families you help, you're disadvantaging most other families in the world. And I can see that you're sort of protecting your own sense of self as a good person by not addressing that, at least not overtly with me. That's really interesting, Brooke. And you said um, when you introduced the three categories, you said you had other examples of where people become sort of sucked into a different belief system, which is kind of at odds with their original professional ethical training. Could you explain a bit more about that? Sure. The example we just spoke about was what you might call a set of relational commitments. Like you you become committed to serving specific people at the expense of all other people. And you kind of cast aside your commitment to abstract ideals like the rule of law or justice. One kind of belief system that can lead you off the path into professional misconduct The other kind that I've seen in my own research is a commitment to a different set of abstract ideals than the one your profession stands for. So in the realm of offshore, usually that commitment to abstract ideals has to do with a kind of um, what you might call libertarian anarchism. And that philosophy includes the idea that all tax is theft by definition, and that Your wealthy clients, you may not like them, you may not relate to them very well, but you believe that as a professional that they are wealth creators and that it is categorically unfair for the government to confiscate, you know, in scare quotes, the hard-earned fruits of those wealth creators' labor. And maybe 25% of the wealth managers I interviewed were committed, or they, they seemed to be committed to this sort of and Randian ideal in which all wealthy people were put upon John Galtz, who were being held upside down by their ankles and, and shaken out by the welfare state. And it was the job of the wealth manager, the professional, who was usually an attorney or an accountant, to protect those wealth creators because it was unfair and wrong the way they were being treated. And I suppose that sort of libertarian angle would also help explain you know some of the you know really vehement anti-vaxxing campaigning that particularly in the states you you've been seeing from some quite you know distinguished medical people i mean fortunately in this country in the uk we're that's not happening but can you explain a bit more about how that plays out in the states i think one of the things that links anti-vaxxers to anti-taxers is a kind of anti authoritarian or anti-authority attitude, a resentment that anyone should be able to tell 
individuals what to do. Some political philosophers have called that libertarian anarchism. It's mostly the department of people who are so wealthy that they can buy their way out of any sort of constraints. They're the people who, in the days of military conscription, used to pay some poor sod to take their place on the front lines. But now they invest their energies as professionals in saying, you can't make me or my client do X. And X might be taxes, and X might be vaccinations. It might be even things like repaying your debts or paying a, a legal judgment. Like if, if you get divorced, if you have a high profile divorce and your spouse is awarded a lot of money by the court, you may just say, well, on grounds of my conscience, I can't accept this and I'm going to go into exile to avoid this judgment, or I'm going to put all my assets in an offshore asset protection trust. And there are people who do this routinely. It's sort of a game. And I think some of the professionals who support this, some do it because it's lucrative. Other people do it because they really believe that once you become a sort of uh, well-to-do person, you ought to be above the law. Brooke, I wanted to come back to these three levels that you were talking about, these three separate buckets for reasons for for engaging in wrongdoing. And I can imagine if it's money or beliefs at some level, you just find a way of justifying what you're doing to yourself. But the third category of being carried along by peer pressure. In your research or in your, your studies, is it quite common for people to step back and realize what they're doing and regret it? And, or do they then start to find a way of explaining to themselves and justifying to themselves why they haven't been able to withstand that peer pressure? Oh, well, likely both. What interests me is, you know, who are the people who can stand up and why do they do it? For some people, it's like religion. They have a prior commitment to whatever allegiance they have to their profession or their workplace or their coworkers. It's easier to explain why people go with the flow, why they don't want to lose the regard of their colleagues or make their colleagues feel ashamed by their own sort of protests. I think of whistleblowers in this context. It's not by coincidence that whistleblowers are almost always people who are already socially marginal in a group. They have less to lose. So if you go back 20 years ago to the WorldCom and Enron scandals, who were the whistleblowers? They were women, women professionals, because they were already in the minority. They were already sort of semi-sidelined, even though they'd attained fairly high-ranking positions. So they had sort of one foot outside this tightly bonded group. And remember that places like WorldCom and Enron, the kind of evil geniuses behind those frauds, made a huge point of engaging in bonding exercises what they call team building. And this goes back to um, one of the misuses of leadership is to jack up the price of dissent so that you bond, bond, bond people to you socially as well as professionally so that you make it extremely costly for them to question you if you engage in misconduct or to refuse themselves to engage in misconduct. But it, it's a pattern you see repeated throughout financial history where women nowadays, usually in the professions, end up being the whistleblowers and are usually ignored. Can I just come back on one point on the, almost the flip side of that, Brooke? Because there you're talking about this kind of almost collective delusion that takes over a group of people, usually 
inspired by, you know, a powerful leader. But what about the opposite case? Because I've observed cases where you get black sheep or lone wolves, if you like, who are almost work in isolation from their partners and go off the rails because they're not bound into the group collective sense of culture and sense of what's right. And they lose touch of that. So I've seen the opposite there with individuals. You probably remember Nick Leeson of Barings Bank. Was it 25 years ago? It's more than 20. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There can be people who are disconnected. Apparently Leeson was. He was pretty young. And apparently he that kind of takes us back to the status competition. He wanted to make a killing. He wanted to sort of show himself to be this highly competent professional. And all he ended up doing was losing money hand over fist. And then he doubled down and tripled down and quadrupled down and ultimately brought down what was, I believe at the time, the oldest investment bank in the world. I think it's really interesting because you've been talking about, first of all, how leaders can create the problem. And we've been talking about how individuals can be the problem. But I think there's a bit in between, which is how leaders inadvertently create the problem so that they can basically say, I haven't done anything wrong. Everything I've suggested is totally ethical and appropriate. But yet by continuously applying pressure to perform better on all the professionals within the firm, they have effectively created the preconditions which will encourage some individuals out of desperation to transgress. And I think in a sense, those are the hardest ones to to really make sense of, because as far as they're concerned, they have acted from the purest of motives, but actually they have created the problem in the first place. I think you make a really good point about the ways that that leadership can go wrong in terms of uh, professional misconduct. Of course, we've all read about high-profile cases where the leadership itself was corrupt and leading others into corruption and betrayal of their professional ethics. But you're right in that a, a leader can herself be a, an upstanding person and do all the right things and adhere to professional ethics, but also be clueless about systems that she's put in place that might create um, incentives or pressures for other people to engage in misconduct. It's sort of like the difference between sins of omission versus sins of commission in the sense of the leaders who are... Uh, taking other professionals, tempting them into to misconduct or rewarding them for misconduct. They're committing sins of commission. But the leaders who are simply unaware of the incentives or punishments that their organizational structures create for others' behavior may well be committing sins of omission. And what's interesting is I'm not sure leadership classes in in any profession even allude to this problem, much less train people what to do about it. The only other question that I wanted to ask you, Brooke, was whether you had a sense that this issue around professional misconduct, to put it at its lowest, I guess, is something that is an increasing issue. And if it is, are there some other bigger drivers behind this, some other external factors beyond the in motivations of the individual. But are there other factors that are at play here? I think so. You put me in mind of uh, this sort of German political philosopher named Jürgen Habermas. And years ago, he coined this phrase that I think about a lot, the colonization of the life world. 
And what he means by that is that some ideas can become so pervasive that it almost becomes impossible to think outside of them or to imagine a world without them. And in in my lifetime, which spans, I remember the 70s, I'll put it that way. I remember how the world was in America in the 70s. And I remember vividly the ascension of Ronald Reagan in 1980 to the U.S. presidency. Well, I guess technically 1981 when he was inaugurated. And his bringing in this idea that greed is good, government is the problem, and sort of by extension, this unstated belief that service is for chumps and the public interest is for chumps or for for losers who can't make it on their own. And I've watched that ideology basically colonize my life world. Imagine sitting around a boardroom and talking seriously about public service, not as lip service, not as PR, but for real. It's really difficult for me to think of any leaders who do that and mean it. And in in the professions, one of the effects that's had is that you may personally believe in public service, you may personally want that, but you may not be able to talk about it unironically with your peers or practice it openly. It's like your little secret, your secret belief system. Like even if I, an underpaid university professor, you know, it's, it's sort of understood that if you join academia, you're, you're voluntarily giving up some opportunities to enrich yourself. And it, you must have some sort of underlying ethos of service. But I can't imagine even talking to my colleagues about that without saying, no, no, I really mean this. Hmm. And also having some trepidation about them making fun of me. Like, oh, what a, what a corny thing to say. What a silly thing to say. It's almost unprofessional to talk about wanting to to use your expertise to serve the greater good, even though that was the original purpose of having professions in the first place, to serve the greater good. That was the deal, the the social contract. And we've so far lost that, that I think that's the larger climate that I see is problematic here. Brooke, I think that's a, a fantastic point to finish because when you're starting to talk about concepts like purpose, and greater good. I mean, you're putting me in mind of the really, you know, corny and and um, purpose statements that so many professional service firms have, and and the um, and the rhetoric around corporate social responsibility and good governance and all this kind of things. But these are all concepts that have basically been colonized for commercial purposes, and it's quite different from being driven by an underlying profound commitment to the kind of professional values that you're talking about. So it's another example of how the professional is continuously kind of repurposed and reimagined and reinvented along commercial lines. And whether it's coming from at an individual level or at an organizational level or at a societal level, all these forces are at play and help to explain why we keep seeing over and over again so many examples of wrongdoing within the professional realm. It's a very profound point, I must say. Um, How do we turn this around? What's the way forward? I think what has to happen almost is that there has to be this kind of crash and burn where we take the system that we have now to its logical extreme, which is that you have doctors telling people not to take vaccines, contrary to all scientific evidence. And you have 
people who have sworn allegiance to, to truth and justice as attorneys perverting those things openly. I mean, uh, one of the attorneys who represented former President Trump has been hauled up on professional ethics charges. And she just stated in court, like in writing and filing to a judge, no reasonable person would have believed any of the nonsense that I was spouting, which is basically an open admission. Yes, I'm an attorney and I, I purposefully deceive millions of people for profit. What are you going to do about it? The professions themselves will sort of collapse. No one will respect expertise or professions if we keep pushing this to further and further extremes. So professionals themselves somehow have to rein it in and go, okay, pockets have been lined, peer pressure has been acceded to, now we have to clean ourselves up. Brooke, I knew it would be fascinating to have an opportunity to discuss these issues with you and thank you so much. Very, very thoughtful and very, very insightful. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much, Brooke. That was, to me, was very, very compelling. So what interested you about that, David? For me, it was her final point when she said it's become almost embarrassing as a professional to talk about public service, that you risk being seen as kind of just hopelessly idealistic. I must say, I actually had a really quite emotional reaction to that because I thought, do you know what? She is absolutely right about that. But that not that awful? David, as a lifelong banking lawyer, whatever made you think you were performing a public service? Well, I can answer that because I never for a moment thought I was doing anything harmful or inappropriate or damaging uh, to people. I always believed that it wasn't just about making money, that you were serving your clients and in the process, you were making some kind of worthwhile contribution to, on a wider scale. You were making things happen in the world. And I did think that A&O, and I still think this, stood for something really important in the world. It did a lot of great things and it stopped a lot of bad things happening. And I thought the work was generally about advancing society. You know, even if it was as simple as helping to finance the building of a railway or a dam or a bridge. You know, these things in some way ultimately were taking society forward. So uh, how did all the work that ANO did writing uh, non-disclosure agreements for the Weinstein Corporation, how, how did that fit into okay, that? So I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that really illustrates another point that Brooke made, that concepts of professional ethics are not static and they change over time. A good example is the changing attitudes to tax avoidance schemes and the roles of accountants and lawyers in there helping clients pay less tax. You know, in the old days, nobody had any issue with that. Nowadays, it's completely off limits. Well, so what exactly challenged you in, in what Brooke said? Because I think I realised that what I believed in very deeply about our work was not something that people would have talked about in the firm. It wasn't kind of common currency in everyday conversation. And I think it's true that anyone who did talk like that probably would have been seen as hopelessly idealistic. And as a leader in the firm, maybe I should have talked more about that and I should have encouraged others to talk more about that, to articulate, you know, what it is, why were we here, what was the good that we were doing on this wider scale? Well, nowadays, the leaders of professional firms talk about purpose all the time. Uh, many have developed 
ridiculously grandiose statements of purpose. But in claiming to do good for the world, I mean, they're still missing the point about the social purpose of professional work. Ultimately, professionals should do good in the world by doing good professional work that's grounded in strong ethical principles. But somehow that sounds too dull, too unsexy to to work as a rallying cry anymore. Yeah, no, I I can see that. It's a, it's a bit a little bit worrying because it does go to the heart of what it means to be a professional. But I still do think that it's possible to be a good professional, grounded in the right ethics, and also to be a business. I don't see any obvious contradiction between those two things, although I can see there is a tension. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, we don't need auditors to save the world, but the world does need them to be able to do a good audit. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you again to Professor Brooke Harrington for joining us today. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to you joining us next time. Bye.